The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. All right, I like this extra time that I have uh, to preach. I don't know if I'll fill it all up, but we'll we'll get a start at it and see where we end. So if you'll open your Bibles to Exodus chapter 26, our study this evening is part three, conclusion. Uh, it's part three, conclusion of the message on the door of the tabernacle. We've, we've studied various uh, aspects of tabernacle worship, and all of it's been outside of the tent of the congregation, and We've talked about the superstructure with the foundation of silver. We've discussed the framework of golden boards and bars. And we've talked about the four coverings that go over the tent. And now we're almost, almost ready to go to the inside. And appropriately, the way to the inside is through a door. And this door is briefly described in Exodus 26, verses 36 and 37. And thou shalt make an hanging... For the door of the tent, a blue and purple and scarlet and fine twine linen wrought with needlework, and thou shalt make for the hanging five pillars of acacia wood and overlay them with gold, and their hooks shall be of gold, and thou shalt cast five sockets of brass for them. Now, once again, I want to show you the artist's conception of the door. Our text describes the fabric and the colors, and they are consistent with fabrics and colors that we've seen throughout uh, the tabernacle. That includes the clothing of the, of the high priest. And as you know, these colors are indications of the work and the character of Christ so that everything that we see in the tabernacle has this common theme to magnify the Son of God. And second only to the cross, there isn't a more familiar symbolism of Christ than that of a door. He is the opening, he is the passage through which every soul must enter before they come into the presence of Almighty God. In fact, He is the way into the glories of God, and He is the only way that anyone can enter. Uh, we're reminded, or at least I am, of our study of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We had uh, these many weeks of discussion about end times, and we talked about the Millennial Kingdom. And in the Millennial Kingdom, there is only one religion that is permitted across this entire earth. There is only one worship. There is only the worship of Jehovah God, and that takes place in the millennial temple where Christ will rule and reign. There is only one worship because there is only one God. And no one experiences the blessedness of eternal life with God without Jesus Christ. And that's pictured in the tabernacle by this beautiful door. It represents Christ. And when this door is walked through, on the other side of that is the beauty of golden walls reflected uh, in the light of the golden candlestick, light bouncing around off the golden altar, the golden table that's on the other side, and beyond that is the most holy place where there is a mercy seat and there is the light of the brilliant glory of God. And we're also reminded on the outside there's the drab, dusty, barren desert of the wilderness of Sinai, while behind this beautiful door is, is majesty. On desert sands, 
and seeing the drabness of the outer covering, there is no imagination of what would be seen on the inside. And so the scripture says that Christ would have no outward beauty. There would be nothing in him that people would desire him. And so no one knows what he's really like until they pass through the door. Until they come to him in the bliss of salvation, do they say, see everything that they miss by staying on the outside. Now just briefly, in our, uh, just to review our previous messages, we've discussed that this door is a personification. First, the door is a person. There isn't a literal door that people go through to get into the glories of the Father. Now, I say that when, in fact, there are four literal gates of pearl that allow passage into heaven. They also represent Christ. But it's not really the literal gates that are the uh, permission of entrance. The permission to go inside is because of the person. The way in is the person, and it's by the instrument of faith in him that we receive the righteousness of Christ that allows us to enter. I love this new song that we sing, His Robes for Mine. I think we sung that once, and, and it comes up again before too long. His Robes for Mine. And this is what happens when we, we receive Christ by faith. We lay down our robes, the robes of self-righteousness, and we receive new clothing. We're clothed with the garments of salvation. And it's these new white robes of perfect righteousness that allow us to enter. Isaiah describes this in Isaiah 61 verse 10. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord, and my soul shall be joyful in my God. For he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decketh himself with ornaments, and as a bride adorneth herself with jewels. Perfect righteousness. That is the only way that we will see God. And as we pass through that door, that door of salvation, if you want to put it that way, as we pass through that door, we are just draped with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And it's because of this that God looks on us and we are pardoned by Jesus Christ. He, he looks at Christ, actually, and pardons us. As the song says, because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. Now going further, we discussed the five pillars that support the door. These pillars we described as pillars of faith. And our faith is held up by the sure object of our faith. And that object, of course, is Christ, the one who is the creator and the sustainer of this universe. And faith is sure because the object in which we place our faith is sure. And then we discuss Christ as the passage to life. That he is, as you read in John, the way, the truth, and the life. And as we've already said, there is just one way. And, and when I say that, we really don't care how offensive we are. Some people say, oh, that's very offensive to say that Jesus is the only way of salvation. What about all the other religions in the world? And if Jesus is the only way, you are so narrow-minded and bigoted. I don't care how offensive that is, because it wasn't me that excluded all others from salvation. We, we needn't think that the only God who is a jealous God would be inclusive of those who reject the crucified body of his Son and reject the blood that was shed on the cross of Calvary, why would we expect that God would include those who don't believe in his Son? So that's our first observation in the sermon, that this door stands for a person. That door is Jesus Christ, and he is the only way to the Father. 
Now, secondly, the door is a proposal. Jesus said, by me, if any man will enter in, he shall be saved. And so it is proposed that who those who will come and walk through this door receive salvation. Now, regeneration is a monergistic act of God, but repentance and faith, as we explained, are synergistic. So there is a proposal that's made, and this proposal must be received, or as some say, accepted before salvation is received. Regeneration is the enlightenment, it's the, it's the quickening, it's the enablement of the holy fruits of repentance and faith. Now, never, never let it be said that we believe that God forces people to be saved. Now, regeneration opens blinded eyes to this inevitable good choice to receive Christ. And that never results in anything less than the accomplishment of its purpose. And so in regeneration, this is how the person sees. This is how his eyes are open to the truth. And then by an act of his will, by man's will, that he is enabled to these righteous acts of repentance and faith. And then he comes to Christ. So the door then becomes an invitation to come. And as the Bible says, this door can be entered by anyone who desires salvation. Now the scope of salvation is wide enough that God says, whosoever will may come. And as our statement of faith reads, there's only one thing that prevents the salvation of any sinner. Maybe I should say two things. That is his own inherent depravity and his voluntary rejection of the gospel. And then in our final comments from last week, we discussed that the supply of salvation is immediate. There isn't a tryout period. You know, I've seen that. I just thought of this. ...advertised by some churches and, and some people in their evangelism efforts. They will say things like, try Jesus for a while and see if he works. Try Jesus for a while and see if your life will change. No, you don't try Jesus. You either believe him or you don't. You either have salvation or you don't. You either have faith in him or you don't. And so the salvation in Christ is immediate. There's no tryout period. There isn't a waiting list. There isn't a test that you have to take. And we do know that there are some churches that have a waiting time for membership. Some of them have a waiting time for baptism. I, I attended a church in Tampa, Florida. I worked there uh, several years ago. And uh, on one Sunday evening, the pastor announced that on the following week there would be a baptism. I hadn't been to this church just a few times. I, I would visit sometimes on Sunday. And he said, we're going to have a baptism next week, and we really do need to take care of this because there are people on the list to be baptized that have been on there, on there for six months. So we need to get that done. Well, I think the New Testament's a little bit more immediate than six months for baptism. But I do know this, that, that the pastor would not have waited that long if he thought baptism was necessary for these people to be saved. So he knew that he could put off the baptism because their faith six months ago had immediately saved them. Then there are some churches that will say you have to go through a membership class before you become a member. And I can see the wisdom in that, although I've never practiced it. But some time ago I regretted that I didn't do this. Uh, we had a young couple that wanted to become members of our church, but it was obvious that they didn't understand um, church doctrine. They didn't understand that their baptism wasn't valid. And I mean by that, that they had been baptized by someone who had no authority to baptize anyone. So we were discussing this in the office, and 
I, I told them about requirements for membership in Berean, and so I took them through those requirements, and they didn't understand. And as I told them, here's what you must do, well, the next week they didn't come back. They wanted to become members, but after I told them, explain these things, they never came back. And I always regretted that because I thought, if I just take them, had taken them a little bit slower, if I would said to them, why don't you just attend church for a while, listen to what we preach, hear, hear what we believe, and when you understand it better, then we can talk about your church membership and also about the subject of baptism. So I regret that I didn't do it. But baptism and church membership, though they are essential for the growth of the Christian, you must be baptized and become a member of the church for your uh, sanctification and your growth, but those two things are not salvation themselves. You see, when the Holy Spirit regenerates, there instantly follows repentance and faith. In fact, it is so instantaneous that we don't even consider the chronological order of these things. We, we don't really consider how does it work out time-wise where you have regeneration, repentance, and faith. And so rather we just regard the logical order. So we say re regeneration must come first. That has to come first because there has to be an awakening of that person who is dread and trespasses and sin to make it possible for him to believe. But chronologically, we can't put a time division there because it's instantaneous. All of that happens together. So what I'm saying is, you don't have to be catechized to be saved. You don't have to make an application to be saved. You don't need to make an appointment for it. You don't need to wait. When Christ says, come, you're ready right then. He's ready right then. And all you do is receive him by faith. And so you come out of that lost condition. Anyone who desires to be saved can be released from the penalty of his sins at the very moment that he trusts Christ. And so this is the pattern that we see in the New Testament if you look at the Apostle Paul and his ministry, you see very little time that's spent in conversion. You ever noticed as you read the scriptures that when people hear the word of God, the Holy Spirit is working and, man, like this, people are being saved. And sometimes by the thousands, people are being saved. And so you don't see a lot of time spent on the issue of conversion. Churches were started by Paul in brief periods of time. And we've talked about that also in the First Thessalonian uh, series that Paul had, what we say, three weeks, three weeks to, send, uh, to spend with the people in that area, and a church came out of it. So you see the immediacy of salvation. And then who, of course, can forget about the Philippian jailer? Uh, Paul's experience with him happened right around the time of the church at Thessalonica. And you remember how Paul and Silas were singing songs in the night. And the Philippian jailer heard the resolve of Paul and Silas to rejoice in their God even amidst their suffering. And so he asked a very simple question. Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And Paul and Silas' only answer was believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And right then the Bible says they were saved. The whole household was saved. All of them were baptized on the same night. And then if I might comment just a little bit further on the songs that the jailer must have heard. Now, you know, the Bible doesn't say anything there about the message of salvation, that he heard that. Did it say anything about that? Do I, do I, am I interpreting that wrong? Did I read it wrong? Now, he probably heard Paul and Silas speaking to some of the other prisoners. But it seems like it was the songs that he heard in the night that just kind of perked him up and caused him to think about this. And so I began to wonder, what about those songs? What were they singing about? And that must have been songs about the grace of God. 
Must be songs like you hear at Berean Baptist Church. Must be songs that talk about what Christ did for us and the depravity of man and what it takes, of course, for people to be saved. And this is why we need to be very, very careful that we sing the right songs. There are too many churches that have been stuck in in the gospel songs of revivalism, songs that are short on content. We've been too long in flighty, repetitious choruses, and they have little to nothing to say about the depravity of man, the condition that we're in, and the sovereign pleasure of our God. So I'm thankful that we're able to revise our song services and bring back uh, some of these songs that have deep theological content In fact, many of the songs that we sing have more theology than most preachers have in their Sunday morning sermons. That you'll learn more from hearing us sing one of our songs than you will a month of hearing their feel-good sermons that they preach. So listen, the message of the Word is that salvation is today. You can be saved today. And so when we take the gospel to people, we offer them the gospel just as Christ did, just as the apostles did. And they said there will be immediate relief. Heaven is assured at the very moment that you believe, the very moment that a person repents and believes, he's on his way to heaven. Now, let me read this verse from John chapter 5. We read it last week. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me hath everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death unto life. That verse is immediate salvation. The one who believes has already passed from death unto life. Well, in the end of the last message, I said that we would talk a little bit more about what it means to be saved. John 5.24 says we pass from death unto life. So in that sense, salvation is secured to us. Heaven is secured at the moment of belief. You are justified and sanctified at the moment of belief. So you don't need to learn anything else. You don't need to do anything else. Nothing has to be done to be secured of eternal life that hasn't already been done by the operation of the Holy Spirit in conversion. Sanctification is an immediate action that is subsequent upon our justification. Now hear me well on this because I mean this type of sanctification is immediate. Now as you know, sanctification comes from the Greek word hagios, hagiadzo, translated variously as holy, as saint, as sanctify, and it means to be set apart for a special purpose. And when you believe... You are set apart to God, then you become a saint of God. And that is your position with God. And so we call this type of sanctification, positional sanctification. It's immediate upon belief. It can't be improved. It's a condition that never changes. But then there's another type of salvation, and because, or sanctification rather, there's another type, and because of this we can say that our salvation is not yet complete. There are three tenses to our salvation. There's a past, present, and future tense, and they are defined by this different type of sanctification. This is what we call progressive sanctification. I know that's old news to most of you, but it's important for us to review because our study of the tabernacle is supposed to be more than just a statement of types and figures. What we need is to see how the tabernacle teaches doctrine. 
And whenever we have opportunity, it's always good for us to be reminded of our doctrine. And the very things that we talk about here, all of these doctrines that we speak of are, are things that people don't get to hear in Sunday sermons. Does that, does that make me better or, or smarter than others? No it, no, it only does this. It only points to the necessity of the right type of preaching in the pulpit. And, and I believe that, as I said this morning, the right type of preaching is to exposit the Word of God verse by verse for the growth of God's people. And that means you're going to have to take everything that comes, every doctrine that comes, just as soon as you see it in the verse. So our methodology is expository. And the Holy Spirit works through the knowledge of the Word. People don't grow without the Word. And so looking at Scripture and getting a proper understanding of sanctification, we find that there are these three tenses. And the first is the past tense of our salvation. This is our freedom from the penalty of sin. Freedom from the penalty of sin. Your standing right now as a child of God is that upon your belief in the past, in that hour of salvation when you believed, you were freed from the penalty of sin. Your sins were forgiven. You can no longer be held in account for them. In Romans 8.1, Paul wrote, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now the underlying cause of the removal of the penalty is justification. We are justified by God through the instrument of faith and the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. Now, as we saw uh, earlier, God looks on us with no cause for condemnation because our sins were placed on Christ who took that penalty in his death on the cross. Now, further, Romans 8.33 says, who shall, who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. Now here, the apostle rules out any accusations against us because God is the one who has the power of condemnation. And Paul says, God justified. And so because God justified, there isn't anything that can separate us from him. And so Paul goes on in the rest of Romans 8 in that chapter to name all possibilities of separation. And then he rules out all of those possibilities. And he says, here is the reason we rule these out. It is because God justified. God justified. Now just condemnation of sin is a factor that's largely missing from most preaching today. Most preachers do not preach about justification because they don't believe sin is really a problem. You don't hear it. They're not concerned about the transgression of God's law because what you hear from pulpits today is that God is a God of love. God just loves everybody. And God's not going to condemn anybody. It just, just God just loves you. So the love of God transcends all and God will not punish anyone. But the truth is, without the door of salvation, there is not a single person that escapes the penalty of God. And we only need to look at the tabernacle to see this fact is taught in symbols. On the outside of the tabernacle, there is a brazen altar where sacrifices are burned. You know what it represents? You should. It represents God's judgment. The fires represent punishment in hell. And the fire is inflicted upon a substitutionary sacrifice. And so the scriptures are telling somebody has to pay for sin. Either Christ paid for it or you will pay for it. You will be punished for it. 
or the substitute is punished. Now, thank God Christ is that substitute who took the penalty of the believer's sins at the cross. And by his death, we are released forever from that penalty. That was done in the past when you believed. Now, secondly, there is the present tense of our salvation. And this is the believer in its freedom from the power of sin. why, Why do we believe in the doctrines of grace? Why do we trust those doctrines? Well, because not only is this a past issue, but it's a present issue. Every person is gripped by sin with total inability to break free of its chains. Scripture says that we are dead in trespasses and sin, and there is no hold like a death hold. A dead person does nothing. He has no spiritual power, and that's what keeps him from freely believing in Christ. So it's a matter of inability. The scriptures are clear about this. Dead people can't do anything. So this necessitates the action of God first. God has to do something first before we can repent and believe. And that is the purpose of regeneration. Now it happens that in regeneration, what, what happens to the person is that he is awakened to spiritual life and he's no longer shackled by that power of sin. And being no longer shackled by it, he is, he is empowered or enabled to repentance and faith. And this this same action also gives him a a present enablement in his life to resist the power of sin and not to live any longer in it. That's reflected in Romans chapter 6. There the apostle wrote, Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now, if we be dead with Christ... We believe that we shall also live with him. Now, we've been talking about death, talking about the sinner's death. Well, here we see a different death. Before, we were talking about the the death of the person without Christ, the spiritual death that he can't escape because nobody brings themselves to life. I mean, will we all agree with that? No one does that. No one can bring themselves to life. But here, he's talking about a different death. he's, he's, He's talking about... Uh, uh, the first is the death to spiritual life where we couldn't respond because of, of, of spiritual death. Now, in these verses, he talks about us being alive, and yet he says we are crucified with Christ. And he means that the old man that we were, that is crucified, that it's dead, and so that sin no longer reigns in us. The old man is dead. We are dead to sin in that sense. We're, we're dead in Christ. And now sin has no power over us. Romans 6.14 says, For sin shall not have dominion over you, for you're not under the law, but under grace. And so when we enter through Christ the door, at that very moment, the power of sin is broken. Before, you couldn't do anything pleasing to God. You know, I always ask this question when we teach on this. Is faith pleasing to God? Is it? Yes, faith is pleasing to God. Can you do anything pleasing to God? Before you are enabled to? Can you? No, you can't do that. So you have to be enabled to it. So the power of sin is broken by this. There is no good work in the unregenerate sinner. There is no power to good work that God recognizes. But passage through the door changes that. In Philippians chapter 1, Paul writes, Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun... Listen to that. He which hath begun... A good work in you will perform it into the day of Jesus Christ. Now, can we argue with that verse? 
He has begun it. He is the one that started it. Is that not what it says? He that had began that good work in you will do what? He will complete that work. He'll bring you through to the day of Jesus Christ. And so when the Holy Spirit comes and regenerates and brings the person to life in order to believe, the inevitable result of that will have to be repentance and faith because he that began the good work will always see it through. So the good work begins with God at the moment that you go through the door. Then it progresses to this in verse number 11. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness which are by Jesus Christ under the glory and praise of God. Now you see that? There's nobody that's at that stage being an unbeliever. Nobody's at that stage. They can't be. He's still dead. That person is dead. But if you are alive under Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you and the sanctifying power of the Holy Spirit enables you to serve God and to be pleasing to the Lord that saved you. That's the big difference between the unbeliever dead in sin and the one who is alive to Christ. Now we are enabled to good works before we're enabled to know good works. So it takes God working in us first. Now that's the present tense as we go through this life. We are being sanctified. We are being saved from the power of sin. All but understand this. We are still talking about sin, aren't we? Sin is still present. Sin is still a part of our lives because we're still in this body that has not yet been made perfect. Now, although we are freed from the power of sin, we are not yet free from the struggle with sin. And that struggle is so intense at times that Christians become desperate. Romans 8 says, We groan within ourselves, waiting for the redemption of our bodies. What does he mean by that? Waiting to get out of the body of sin that we still live in. We groan within ourselves. Sin is still present. So we groan and the struggle is there. We can't shake ourselves completely of it. So there are times when we fall back into sin. And then the conviction of the Holy Spirit causes us to loathe ourselves because of of what we've done. I mean, we hate what we've done to God. If you're a Christian that gets into sin, you will end up, you must end up hating what you have done because of what Christ did for you. You hate your sin. Oh, and so we groan when we sin against the Lord. The struggle is still there. We can't rid ourselves of it. So there are those times that we fall back into sin and the loathing. That is the groaning that Paul talks about in Romans chapter 8. Paul described the despair in Romans 7 when in near disgust with himself, he just threw up his hands and he said, Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? And then he goes on and he says the only deliverance is because there is the power of God in him. The present power of God to help him to overcome that sin. So he says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. The mind that's been renewed still, I mean, it goes on and serves God while the flesh has that struggle. So this is the problem. We are justified from sin. The penalty is no longer on us. We are freed from the power of sin because the Holy Spirit lives in us. But we lack still one thing. We lack still one thing, and it's the last critical piece of our salvation. Our salvation, the final salvation, is yet future. And this is the future tense of sanctification. This is freedom from the presence of sin. 
When will we be, be free from the presence of sin? Well, it's at the end of that golden chain of salvation. Salvation stretches from eternity past to eternity future. And we are living in the middle of that progression. We're in the present. And we're waiting for the complete release from sin. And that happens when we're glorified with Christ in heaven. When does that glorification take place? Oh, it happens in the resurrection. Our bodies will be raised in a glorified state and then we're given newly constructed, resurrected bodies without the presence of sin in it. 1 Corinthians describes, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised, how? Incorruptible. And we shall be changed. For this corruptible man must put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. This is what happens in the death of a Christian and the resurrection of the Christian. Death is the release of the present body from the corruption and the presence of sin. This is when the body loses the sin nature and is resurrected to heaven. Now I want you to understand though that the soul of man, the new man, renewed in the spirit, this, this, uh, this soul of man, when the body dies, the soul is already in heaven. The soul goes immediately to be in heaven. It doesn't wait for the resurrection. The, the, the soul is there. The spirit has been released from the presence of sin already because it's gone to a place where there is no sin. Hebrews 12, 22 and 23 but ye are come unto Mount Zion, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn, which are written in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and listen to the last phrase, and to the spirits of just men made perfect. Just men made perfect. That means the spirit is perfect. There's no sin in that spirit. And where is this spirit? It's in the heavenly Jerusalem. The description is given in Revelation 21. And the gates of it shall not be shut at all by day, for there shall be no night there. And they shall bring the glory and honor of the nations into it, and there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie, but they which are written in the Lamb's book of life. There is no sin in heaven. Our, our, our bodies, our spirits then are perfect. When we're in heaven, there is no sin in us. There is no sin that can ever touch us because there is no sin there. We're freed, what? From the presence of sin. And so that's the past, present, and future tenses of salvation and sanctification. Now, let, let me close quickly with this last, last observation. The door is a promise. The door is a promise. Jesus said, I am the door. That told us the door is a person. The door is a proposal. He says, by me, if any man enter in, he shall be saved. And then Jesus said, and this person will go in and out and find pasture. So the door is also a promise. Now hear what he says. He shall find pasture. Christ leads his sheep to green pastures. What's the thought? What, what does this mean? Well, first it means that there is rest for God's people. The pasture signifies rest. When we go through the door in the final assize, there is rest for the people of God.
In Hebrews 4, For if Jesus had given them rest, then, we, he not, would, then would he not afterward have spoken of another day? There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. Now I want you to look at these two verses. These take us back to the wilderness of Sinai. This is when the people are on the way to the promised land. Now in verse number 8, folks are confused by this because it says, For if Jesus had given them rest. Now there the, Jesus refers to Joshua. Uh, Jesus and Joshua are the same name. In the Old Testament, it's Joshua. In the New Testament, it's Jesus. Two names exactly the same. So verse 8 is referring to Joshua, who took the children of Israel into the promised land, but what he could not give them was a permanent rest. And so the scripture says, yet there yet remains a permanent rest for the people of God. Now the rest for God's people is reflected in the Ten Commandments. It's called the Sabbath. Sabbath means rest. And the Sabbath, commemoration of the Sabbath, is, is, a, is indicative of the, of the final rest that, of those that are in Christ and find pasture. Now, what I could do tonight, I could go off on the importance of the observance of the Sabbath, but I'm not going to do that. You could look that up in the Ten Commandments series on the website, and you can listen to your heart's content about all of those things. But the Sabbath is continued in the sense of a, of a commemoration, a representation in the Lord's Day on, on Sunday morning ser- or Sunday services. And so the Lord's Day then becomes emblematic of a final rest for God's people. Now this is one of the reasons that you want to be in church on Sunday because it's symbolic of this final rest in heaven that we'll have with God. So it's emblematic of Jesus Christ. And so do you understand that when you pass through this door, the search is over. There, there's no more looking for anything. Now it's rest. People look for, are looking for happiness and contentment. Where is that going to be found? The world offers nothing. There's nothing in the world but turmoil. As I mentioned this morning in the sermon, as sure as the sparks fly upward, we're all bound for trouble. We're all born with troubles. That's what Job said. So the world has nothing to offer. But in Jesus there is rest. Matthew eleven twenty eight. he said, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. Next, there is rejoicing for God's people. What do you find when you go through the door? You find the pearl of great price. You hear the sounds of God's people singing and laughing and praising God. There is fullness of joy in Jesus. Psalm 51, but let all those that put their trust in thee rejoice. Let them ever shout for joy, because thou defendest them. Let them also that love thy name be joyful in thee. For thou, Lord, will bless the righteous, and favor wilt thou compass him as with a shield. Psalm 91, uh, four, uh, verse, uh, Psalm 9, verse 14, rather, says, I will rejoice in thy salvation. The door is salvation. It's remarkable that Paul could speak to persecuted Christians and tell them to rejoice. We haven't yet reached this verse in 1 Thessalonians 5, but he says in these last instructions in the letter to the church, he says, rejoice evermore. How do you do that? How in pain and suffering do Christians rejoice? Well, we find that passing through the door puts us into the, uh, the presence of the treasures of the Almighty God. 
You see, Paul said the sufferings of this life are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. But you would never believe that. You never believe that until you go through the door. The world doesn't understand it. Do they, do they know what we're talking about? They, they don't know how we can go through troubles and instead of blaming God and being angry with God, we rejoice in sufferings. And as Paul said, you've been counted worthy to suffer for Christ. Nobody understands that. Nobody understands how that's possible until they go through the door. And then finally, there is refreshment for God's people. Contentment is found on the other side of the door. There is a supply waiting for the believer that never runs dry. Psalm 107, For he satisfieth the longing soul and filleth the hungry soul with goodness. Satisfaction. You know, Mick Jagger's 125 years old, still singing, I can't get satisfaction. Well, he never looked in the right place, did he? Sin doesn't give it to you. Sin doesn't refresh. It wears you out. It leaves you in the dust craving for more. Isaiah 12 says, Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord Jehovah is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. So what is the door? It is salvation. The door of salvation is open. Today, Christ receives all who come. Today, there is access through the door. But you know, I can't promise the same thing is true tomorrow. I can't promise that because the Bible doesn't promise it. It tells you, you better go through the door today. You better walk through now because this door can be slammed shut at any moment. You might not make it home tonight. And the salvation door is shut and you'll never enter it. But I, may I also remind you, knowing that door is open, an open door is no better than a closed one if you don't walk through it. So the priest could stand at the door and he could hear and know and under, understand there's beauty on the other side of the door, but he'll never experience it if he doesn't walk through. On some doors, it says private. You aren't welcome at a door that says private. This door doesn't say private. This is a very public door. All kindreds, tribes, and nations can walk through this door. On some doors it says welcome, but it's not really true. Some aren't welcome. My wife put a mat at our front door that says welcome, but some are not welcome. <laughs> JWs, Mormons, Democrat campaigners, they're not welcome. If I'm eating dinner, you're not welcome. If I'm watching Jeopardy, you're not welcome. Just wait till that's over. But that's not Jesus' door. He says, come. He says, whosoever will may come. It's a welcome door. There are none, none are refused who come to this door. So all I can say to that is, thank God he's much better than me. You're always welcome when you come to Jesus. Blessed be God for Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word, the truths from it. We thank you for the wells of salvation that are in Jesus Christ, who is the door to eternal life. So many metaphors, wells and doors and garments and all of these things that we speak of. And 
They all point us to Jesus Christ. There's not enough good that we can say, not enough superlatives when we speak of Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that the door of salvation is open today. And I pray that if there is anyone here at all who doesn't know you as Savior, that they would walk through that door. We pray that your Holy Spirit would open their eyes uh, to the truth of your word and they would come to you in repentance and faith. Thank you, Lord, for the time we spend in your word tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Rohnert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.